following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. So, we are in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and uh, just a, a little recap for the Gospel of Matthew. Um, the Gospel of Matthew is the first book in the Bible. Uh, you can go ahead and, and turn there. Uh, we're going to be Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 11. Um, but Matthew is a, a pretty unique book, and, and kind of prepping for this sermon, um, looked into a little bit more about Matthew. Matthew is um, one of the only books, or actually the premier book, with the teachings of Jesus, right? I mean, the other Gospels contain the teachings of Jesus, but not like Matthew. Matthew has five discourses throughout it, which are primarily Jesus's teaching, right? From the lips of Jesus, him entrusting and imparting um, what it is that he came to do. And so Matthew, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, is the first one of those five discourses in Matthew. And uh, and the Sermon on the Mount is, is this unique passage where Jesus comes and he is, he's reorienting people's thinking. I mean, Jesus is always doing that, but this is really the first time on the scene where he is kind of shifting um, how they understand, how they see things. I mean, for hundreds of years, the authority that was in operation, the Jewish society, was the rabbis and the tradition, right? I mean, they had uh, this tradition that was passed on in the Talmud and, and what they had said, and so that was kind of what they followed. And Jesus comes on the Sermon on the Mount, and he just, he's totally radical, and he says, you've heard that it was said this, but I say to you. And so what is he doing? He's saying, you have found your authority in these institutions, and I'm coming to tell you and shift the focus of authority they are not the authority. I am the authority, right? You've heard that it it's said, but I say to you this. And so Jesus is coming and he's saying, I, I am the Messiah and I am the one that has authority. You need to shift your allegiance from these places and these institutions to, to me. I am the son of God, the one who brought forth this world, the one who spoke the word and is the word incarnate. And so he, he comes and, and is, is, shifting. And so the Sermon on the Mount is only going to have impact if we allow that authority shift to happen in our minds, in our hearts. Is who is authority in your life? What do you see as authority? Jesus comes to shake up our view of what is authority in our lives. And he says, do you realize it's that the primary authority in your life isn't institutions, it's not other people, it's me? Now God gives institutions, God gives leadership, absolutely, but the only the reason and the purpose behind us submitting those is because we submit to him is because we love him as the king. And so he is he's shifting our thinking. And in chapter 5, he goes through and he talks about the principles of the kingdom, right? He's very high and very lofty, but, but he's trying to cast a vision of what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a city set on a hill, right? It, it can't be hidden, you know? And then he starts talking about you shall not, you know, lust or, or commit uh, adultery, you know, you shall not murder. I mean, so he goes through and he starts talking about the really high, lofty things. And he says, this is what the kingdom of God looks like, these things. And then in chapter six and seven, he brings it down from principle to practice. And he starts getting very practical with us. And he starts talking about what does it look like to, to practice your righteousness for an audience of one? What does it look like to live before God in the way that you give, in the way that you fast, in the way that you pray, and that these have practical application to our daily lives as far as whether we will live a life of peace or whether we will live a life of anxiety. 
And so he, he's, bringing, he's bringing these principles down into daily practices. And he said these daily practices are very tangible. They are going to have real-life effects in your day-to-day rhythms. And so we saw last week, we were in the beginning of Matthew 7, and he was talking about uh, that we're not to judge, right? And then he talked about that we are to judge. <laughs> and so, you know, it's this, are we to judge or are we not to judge? And so he's saying, don't judge in a condemning way. Be generous, be encouraging, be a people that speak words of life rather than words of death. But then he talks about that we are to be discerning. We are to be innocent as doves, but, but, but wise as serpents. And so we are to be discerning in how we love people and how we interact with them, especially in the non-believing world. That, that what we've done here with bless, hopefully this brings guidance to this, that we don't just force the gospel into people's throats, but instead we know them, we love them, we pray for them, serve them, we invite the stranger into friendship. And so we know that this is what it means. And then today we're going to talk about prayer. Is that Jesus has already talked about prayer in Matthew 6, and he's going to bring us back to this topic again. And so if you will uh, read with me Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Verse 7. It says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Praise be to God. This is his word. So the big idea that I think encapsulates this passage, if we're going to kind of anchor onto something that's going to uh, guide us through, it's that God invites and desires us to pray. God invites us and desires that we would pray, and that he promises good things to those that ask him. He promises good things to those that ask him. A little more condensed version, one that I'm going to repeat more often, is that prayer to a loving father is effective. Prayer to a loving father is effective. And we're going to see this in, in two things. So the, the passage breaks down into two points. Uh, verses 7 through 8 is Jesus' invitation to prayer. And then verses 9 through 11 talk about uh, the goodness and the generosity of our Father. And so let's go ahead and let's start with verses 7 through 8 and, and Jesus' invitation for us to pray. And I'm going to read those verses again for us. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives, for everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So we see that there are three uh, kind of verbs or the actions that Jesus calls us to do right here in this passage, right? He says that we are to ask, that we are to seek, and that we are to knock. Now, something that's really important to note about all three of these is that they are called present imperatives, okay? So what that means is it means that they are continuous actions, right? They don't stop. Well, I asked once, right? Or I I sought this one time a long time ago, right, that they are continuous things that we are to do over and over again. It's talking about a lifestyle rather than a moment, 
Rather than a fleeting whim, it's talking about discipline and talking about uh, this rhythm that breeds and spreads in our whole life that encapsulates what we are to do and how we are to relate to God, that we are to constantly be in a state of asking, a state of seeking, and a state of knocking with the Lord. Now, what do these three mean? How do they um, flush out? Well, I think that there's, I'm going to give you three Ps to kind of help remember this, is that asking talks about our posture. It's about our posture before God. Seeking talks about our pursuit of God. And knocking talks about our persistence with God. Okay, our posture, pursuit, and persistence. So first, asking talks about our posture before God. What what are you doing when you ask someone for something? Well, you're declaring that you don't have it, right? I mean, right? I mean, like the first, the very obvious thing, if I'm asking you for something, I clearly don't have that thing because I need you for it. And so asking is a posture that we have before God. And it's a posture that declares that we are not self-sufficient. It's a posture that declares that we are not God, that we are not an end to ourselves, that we are finite and and we have deep needs. And so when we come before God, we come before him in a state of humility, declaring that God, I need you. I can't. I can't, but I believe that you can. And so it's this, it's this posture of humility, this posture of dependency. You know, when I think of ask, I always think of coming to God with open hands, right? We come with this, when we're asking, we're coming with this open posture because we want to, right? He says, if you ask, you will receive. And if we're asking, but we're not coming with an open posture expecting God to give, then are we really, do we really have faith in our ask and our requests? And so he says that we are to, to ask God to come in the state of openness where we're, our hands are spread and we're asking God and we're believing that, that we're going to receive. And that doesn't always, we're talking about it, it doesn't always mean that we're going to receive exactly the thing that we asked for, the way that we asked for and when we asked for it. But believing that God does hear and he is going to give. Now, why is it that we don't ask? I, I want to throughout the sermon, kind of break down some of the arguments that we have about why we don't pray. Now, I don't think any of you would come up and say, I'm going to give you an argument for why I don't pray. Like, none of us are, you know, us would, you know, actually argue with me. You know, everybody would raise their hand, yes, I know I should pray, right? Yeah, I'm, maybe I'm not praying as often as I should, but I know I ought to be doing that. You know, but these are arguments that we use subconsciously, right, for why we justify, and they're, uh, they're very subtle. Sometimes they're stronger than others, but they're subtle, and we use them to validate our prayerlessness. And so one of them one of the temptations is to think that we're too busy and we have too much to do for prayer, right? We're too busy. Our lives are packed full. We've got too many things. And anyways, God wants us to be doers, so I need to go do things. I need to, I need to get on it. You know, like my project list is way up here. People I need to meet with, things I need to do. So God, like, I'm going to throw up a couple hair mailies and I'm going to get to it. You know, I need to, I need to, I need to work. And so we have this idea that we're just too busy to pray. Hear this quote from Martin Luther. He says, the world is insane. It tries to get rid of its insanity by the use of wisdom and reason. And it looks for many ways and means for all sorts of help and advice on how to escape this distress. But the shortest and surest way is to go into a little room or a corner and there to open your heart and to pour it out before God, filled with complaints and sighs, 
but also with confidence and trust that as your faithful Heavenly Father, He wants to give you His help and advice in this distress. And this is so convicting for me because I, I fall often into this. And this is coming from a man who helped lead the Protestant Reformation, right? I mean, he initiated, like, he was pretty busy. I mean, he changed the whole course of history, you know, had a little bit of things on his plate. And yet he, in, in the spite of his busyness, said, how, since I'm so busy, how can I not make room for prayer? I mean, I'm, you know, his, his example is overwhelming. You know, three hours a day in prayer, he would wake up so early because he said, I have so much to do. How can I not be in prayer? And I, I'm, I'm convicted by that. But I'm also challenged because he shows that he shows that the best way to be productive isn't in our efforts, but it's it's through submitting to the Lord and trusting in his work. And prayer, I think one of the reasons prayer is so difficult is because it is one of the most selfless things that we can do. And we're very selfish. Right? I mean, it's easier to like read and uh or it's easier to go do something because then I feel productive, you know, versus entirely surrendering and trusting in God's work and saying, God, it's better that you would work than I would work my whole life. It's better that you would work than I would work my whole life. I believe that and I trust that. And that's what we fight. We fight to believe, to believe that. So asking is a posture before God of dependence. We come with open hands. Now seeking, seeking is a pursuit it's a hunger and a desire for the things of God. Now, I love this. It is a wholehearted quest to know God. I'll say a wholehearted quest to know God. I love that word quest. You know, I don't know. It just makes me think of like Lord of the Rings or like these epic journeys, you know, where like these band of brothers, like they get together and they're like, we're going to do something. And right, they go off on this like pretty epic story where they face all kinds of trials and hardships, but they stick together and it's not always easy. But because they are together, because they have set out and they are determined, they're, they're going to see it through. And it's this quest and it talks about that, that in our prayer life, it's a journey. It is this quest that we're going through. And if you see prayer as something that's just simply dull and boring and me shutting myself up in this tiny room and that's and it's and you forget and you segregate prayer from the everyday life, from the struggles that we go through, then you you miss out on so much of what God wants to do in your life through prayer. That prayer is this quest that we are constantly seeking to find God in all the different areas of our life. And that we're seeking God when things are going well. When life is what you feel like it should be, are you seeking God in that? Are you apathetic? Do you have God at distance? Things are going well, so maybe when things fall apart, I'll come back to you, God. You know, or are we are we near him? God, I know that this is not of me. This is of you. And thank you, God, that you would give me a season like this because I don't deserve this. Are we near God when things go poorly? Or are we angry at him? And we push him off and say, God, how could you? Or do we draw near? Do we see God in the suffering? Do we see God in the community around us, in the people, in the lives, in the stories? Man, there's so much. If we would but look, but seek God, he is everywhere and in so many profound ways. It's like a diamond. You turn it, and each way you turn it, you get a different glimpse of its beauty. And so too, God wants us, as we seek him in all different facets of our life, we will find him in different shades of his beauty different shades of his glory. We'll begin to see him 
like that. Matthew 6, it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What does it mean? What is he saying? Seek first. He says, first, seek first the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means that we're seeking to put God's plans in front of our own. God, what would you have for retirement? God, what would you have for marriage? God, what would you have with our finances? What would you have with our free time? God, what is your plan over my plan? And that's, that's hard. That's where it comes down. What do, we, what do we choose to do? Are we going to take control of our lives? Or are we going to give up our lives? Seeking first his righteousness, it means setting a priority on personal holiness and a desire to be sanctified. Do you set a priority on personal holiness? Do you realize that your integrity, your honesty, your work ethic, your faithfulness, your humility, that these things matter they are tangible, they are real. Do you set a priority on these things or is it simply the externals? Is it simply the things that are easily measured that are important to you? And he says that this is what it means to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Psalm 119.2, it says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Our pursuit of God is going to be fruitful as we seek him with all of us with every part of who we are. Journeys aren't um, as prosperous or as uh, enjoyable when our heart is still tied to something else. And so too, when we're seeking the Lord, if our heart is tied to other idols, to other gods, then our seeking is going to be not as fruitful as it ought to be. It's going to be feel like it's in vain at times. Psalm 105, verse 4, seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Right, This encouragement that we are constantly seeking the presence of God to experience him, to know him. Psalm 27, 8, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Man, is this our longing? Is this our passion? This is what we desire to see the face of the Lord, to know him, to be near him. This is what we long for, our pursuit. The last one, and, and I'm goofy. I thought of hand symbols. So like when I think about like asking, I think about open hand. When I think about pursuit, I think about, you know, like a line, like we are going in this direction. You know, like there's a purpose and we're going. And then he says knock, right? And this is persistence. And I imagine, right, you're, you're holding on, right? When you're knocking, you're, your hand's closed and you're holding on. And so that's where this, this knocking is this persistence with God, right? It's a continual coming back to the Lord. It's, it's a persistence or a commitment to endure in our quest to know God, right? That, you know, when, when you see any good storyline, whether it's Star Wars or Marvel, Avengers, or, you know, Lord of the Rings, you always have these moments where it's, you're tempted to give up. Right, where it just seems like everything is against you, it's overwhelming and all the cards are stacked against you. And and what is it? What what do you hold on to that gets you through? And he says, Hold on to me. Keep knocking. Have a commitment to know and part of that is we're in the second half of is we know who our God is, but we hold on fast. We keep knocking. There's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18, and it's uh, the parable of the persistent widow. It's this widow that has been apparently wronged, 
by someone else, and she is going to this judge, and the judge is is wicked. The judge is evil, and uh, but this widow, she's persistent. Like she's like she's persistently annoying him to the point where he's like, "All right, listen. Like I don't care about justice. I just want you to leave me alone." You know, because she just won't stop knocking day in and day out, and she's consistently there. And and he says, "Listen, I don't, I don't care necessarily about justice. I don't care about, but like I, because of your persistence, I'm going to give you what you've asked for. I'm going to give you you justice." And God says, "How much more?" It's the same thing He uses here. How much more will your heavenly Father give justice to the elect, to those that cry out to Him? And so. He talks about a couple things there that we're not to lose heart. That sometimes God, listen, God is not an unjust judge. He is a just judge. He is good, right? And he's contrasting himself, not comparing, okay? So he, he's good, but God and his goodness doesn't always answer in the time frame or the way in which we, which we have. And so sometimes God's desire is that he would develop perseverance and determination within us or within the community around us. And so he has us to const, consistently knock to keep persevering in our knocking and our asking and our seeking. So we're not to lose heart. And the last thing he talks in that parable is he says, the question is, will he find faith on the earth? When he comes, will he find faith on the earth? And so the question is, do we trust God that we are able to be to constantly knock? Because that's one of the things that hinders us is that we 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 get frustrated and we start to doubt. And we then give up. And, and Jesus says, well, I find faith to be consistent, to keep knocking and to keep asking. So we see this in, in Revelation 3.20. He talks about, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Do you hear this? What is Jesus saying here in this knocking? He's associating knocking with intimate relationship. And he says, I'm knocking at the door, right? One of the best things to say is, is, man, look at the things. How did Jesus ask? And what did Jesus ask for, right? When you look at Jesus's prayer life, he's constantly asking the Father for one, for his people, for you and I. We are answers to his prayers. What is it that Jesus sought in his quest? And Jesus has the most epic quest that he left the perfect place of heaven and he stepped into frail, broken humanity, faced opposition from his own people, the people that should have received him. He endured and sought that. Why? For us. And he says that now he knocks at the door, and that if anyone will open, that he will come in and have fellowship with us. You know that, that God desires intimate fellowship with you. So why is it that we I want to I want to go on to this next passage cuz I think it's going to answer some of the questions that we're that I have in my mind that I want us to answer. So the second part is is the goodness and the generosity of our father in verses 9 through 11. He says in verse 9, or which one of you if his son asks him for bread will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? One of the things I think that we desperately need is not a fly by guilt trip because all of us I think know that we should pray more. 
right? We're like, yeah, I know I need to pray more. I don't need, you know, the last thing is that we need to come and, and be guilted into trying to pray more because guilt doesn't work. You know, I mean, it, like you might pray like tonight and then you're like, all right, you know, the guilt doesn't, doesn't change. And so I think the thing that changes in our heart is when we move, discipline and delight are like, are like a, a partner in dance is that you need both of them. There, we're discipline is important in the Christian life, but what moves and motivates discipline? It's delight. It's delight. And so some of us in our prayer life, it's just rote discipline, is that the delight in God has, has faded, and therefore the discipline just seems empty. Or we're not able to be disciplined, right? I mean, we just are inconsistent, and it's, it's, it gets because we're not delighting in the Lord. And so why is it, I, I think one of the reasons that we don't, one of the reasons we don't delight in God is because we don't know that he delights in us. We don't know that God delights in us. And so we often, we don't say it, but sometimes we feel it as if God is distant and he's uncaring, as if he's not real or not near to us. And so I want to ask you a question. Do you, do you know that God loves you? Now, that's a question you've been asked a lot of times, but I want to stop and I want to, I want to paint a word picture. I want you to imagine that when you're not here, you're not in this crowd, but it's just you and I, and we're at a coffee shop, and it's just us, and we're just being real, and we're just being honest, and we're drilling down, and I'm asking you, do you know that God loves you? Not God loves the world, because he does. Not God loves the church, because he does, but God loves you. And listen, not the you 10 years from now, right? Because the you 10 years from now is like superstar you, right? I mean, like they fast, they pray, like they got their life together, right? So of course God loves you 10 years from now, right? But no, the you now, do you know that God delights and loves the you right here, right now, in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your apathy or your indifference or your frustrations or your doubts? Do you believe that God loves you? He's infatuated with you. He desires you. He wants to be intimate and close to you. Do you believe that? Or do you say, but Trevor, that's a nice idea. That's a nice concept. That's a nice truth. But you don't really know me. You don't know what's going on in my heart. You don't know the struggles. You don't know my history or my past. You know the thoughts that I think and how could, how could you say that? Why can I say that? Because God has faced the worst that you can ever throw at him already. There's nothing that you can do that's going to surprise God. Do you understand that? He sees your beginning from your end. And when he went to the cross on your behalf, he took all of it. He took hell upon himself so that you and I would be adopted in, that we would be drawn near and man, this, when this becomes not a concept, but the reality, because listen, there's going to be a time where you might walk out and you might affirm that, say, Trevor, that's a good word. Yeah, I believe God loves me, but it, it didn't hit you. It didn't, it didn't sink into your heart. It didn't strike you. And there are going to be moments in your life where it does. It just pierces the core of you. And it, it, it goes from being this lofty idea to very personal and real that God knows and loves me. And that is what's going to change your heart to delight in the Father. And that delight, that delight is what will drive the discipline.
Not that, not that we aren't to be disciplined, not that we aren't to be consistent. We fight, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's effort. But that effort is driven by delight in the one who delights in us. We love because he first loved us. And so hear that. You need to hear that. You need to believe that. He calls us as children. The three things that we see in this in this latter part in 9 through 11 is that he talks about, he gives a comparison with father and children or parents and children, right? And he says, if parents, if a father will give a good gift, and he says, you who are evil, right? Now, I don't know if it's just a coincidence, but like in the realm of parenting, he calls the parents evil, right? So maybe it's just like when you get into parenting, you like have a fresh realization of your sinfulness, you know, I mean, it, our baby's only six weeks old, so I'm sure I've got years of experience, but like, I am, I get way more, I thought I was a patient dude. Like, I'm not patient. Like, I, I, my patience is like nothing, you know? I'm like, I look at my wife, I'm like, you're way more patient than I am, praise the Lord. So, but I, I mean, like, it's, it's a fresh awakening of the fact that I am not patient. I am, I am sinful, and I am, I struggle. So, but he says that in the midst of, in the midst of parenting, he says, you who are evil, Though you're evil, you, you still know how to good, get, give good gifts, right? And your Heavenly Father knows how to give great gifts, and he's not evil. And man, this, this amazing thing, because it's not fun to be called evil, right? No, I mean, we, we, it's the same thing with love. Like, we, like, I can, I can get away with this, like, now, like, because you're all in a group. I can be like, you're evil, and you're all like, okay, yeah. But, like, if I was, like, one-on-one with you, and I'm like, you're evil, you'd be like, I hate that guy. You're like, what did dude? He just called me evil. Like, I, I don't like. I'm not coming back, right? I mean, like, so it's these truths I can get away with, like in like you know the group setting. But if I were to sit down with you, you know, but it, it's it's true that we though even when we're believers, we still have sin that lies within us that God is is purging. He is he's getting out, but that we still have that. And He says, "You who are who are evil," and, and just just marvel a second at the fact that that we who are evil, we who don't have patience who don't love God the way that we should, who have rebelled against him, that he would call us children. Man. 1 John 3, 1 through 3, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now hear this. God is a father to all in the sense that he creates all, but God in the Bible is specifically a father to those that are related to him by faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you are, the way that you are a child of God, that you are related to him intimately is by trusting in him and his death for your sin and his burial and his resurrection that you might have life. And so I want to invite you, if you don't know Christ today, that you would trust in him, that you would place your faith, that you would go from being an orphan to being a child, that you would transfer that line, that you would know that you have a heavenly father that knows you and loves you and wants relationship with you. And so if you haven't done that, I urge you to do that. And I urge you to let someone know, whether that's coming up to me or whether that's marking on the card, but to make a commitment and to put a mark in the ground and say, this is where I'm standing, and I am going to commit. I want to follow Christ. He says, because the world is different. I mean, there's a clear demarcation between the world and followers of Christ. And so he says, the world did not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, 
we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. One of the ways in which you and I are made holy is by believing that we are God's children and seeing him as our father. Now, one of the things with a father and son relationship is that you bear some resemblance, right? I mean, like, I see that a little bit in Theo, you know? Like, I mean, we bear a little bit of resemblance. You know, hopefully later on, he'll bear the better resemblance, you know? Um, so, uh, he'll, you know, but, uh, and, and some maybe he'll get any good parts of the character. But when we are related to God, his character and his, his image is m- more impressed upon us. We begin to look more and more like our Heavenly Father, and so, Jesus says, he says, one, if you know that God is your heavenly Father, that he loves you and that you are evil, but now you've been reconciled to God. He says, I want, there are three things that I think that should lead us to, to seek God in prayer. One, the fact that he knows. He, he says, right, if an earthly father has a son and comes up and, and he asks him for something, he's not gonna, just going to give him a scorpion, right? Like, if he wants bread, and he's like, oh, I, I'll get you bread, you know, like, and give him a scorpion, right? I mean, like, that'd be a really bad father. <laughs> uh, and he says, hopefully none of you have done that, right? Uh, and so he's, and then he, he gives, you know, another comparison, and he bases on knowledge that, that we're broken, we have limited knowledge, but yet we know how to give good gifts to our children that ask. Man, but how much better is our heavenly father? He knows perfectly. Man, I'm so limited in my knowledge of what is good and what my son ought to have and, and how he ought to be led and raised, but yet God has no lack of knowledge. He knows perfectly. And, and I think this sometimes gets into our objections, right? Because sometimes we read this passage and we immediately, we immediately go to but, right? Well, but I ask, I seek, I knock, but God didn't give me what I wanted. Right? God didn't answer my prayers, I thought. And listen, there are genuine times where it's hard, where people, people are asking, people are seeking, people are knocking, and it feels like it might be what you thought God wants, but God doesn't answer in the way or the time that you desire. And part of why is because he knows. He knows more than what you and I know. There's a quote by uh, Matt Chandler, it says, um, no, we do not get everything we ask for, and we should not, and we would not want to. The reason I say we should not is because we would be in effect, and we would in effect become God if God did everything we asked him to do. We should not be God. God should be God. And the reason I say that we would not want to get everything we ask is because we would then have to bear the burden of infinite wisdom, which we do not have. We simply don't know enough to infallibly decide how every decision will turn out and what the next event in our lives, let alone in history, should be. God alone has the sovereign knowledge to guide this world and guide our lives. And so, yes, hear this. There are some of you, and, and, and I've seen in my own life, where, man, we, we deeply long for a person's salvation. And we've prayed. Or we ask, God, would you heal this person? And the Lord didn't. Or we are longing for our marriages or asking for financial reprieve or, you know, on and on and on. And, and perhaps God has said no or wait or yes, but not the way you thought. And we need to go back and remember and trust that God is good. God is, is good. Because, listen, I don't have the right answer to say why God did all of that. 
I don't, I don't know. I don't know God's heart and mind infallibly and where I can speak in every situation and say, well, that's the exact reason and explain everything away. I still have questions. I still don't understand things. But what I do know is I know God's character. I know who he is. I know his heart. And so I constantly go back to that when I don't understand. There's a quote by Tim Keller. He says um, that if I knew everything that God knows, I would answer my prayers the way that he answers them. If I knew everything that God knows, I would answer my prayers the way that he answers them. And so one of the things that this text is teaching us is that God is not only our Heavenly Father, but he's our Heavenly Father that knows everything. And in light of that knowledge, he orchestrates things in a way that is good. We need to see that that God is is good and that he is also generous, right? I mean, this is what he talks about. He says, if you were evil, know how to give good gifts. How much more will your heavenly father give what is good? And in the, the, the parallel passage in Luke, he talks about the Holy Spirit. And he says, how much will he give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? And so we have to go back and do you believe that God is good and that he gives good gifts Man, I think about it in my own life, and I'm so grateful that the Lord didn't answer some of my prayers. I remember when I was engaged before, and I was like just, I mean, I prayed for a long time about that. And I'm so grateful he said no, because he had something better for me, you know? Like, I mean, like, and, and, and it's because, man, God is good. If you look throughout your life, your life is scattered and, and is brimming full with the goodness of God and his gifts in your life. I mean, in Romans, Paul says, man, if, if God would give his son, what good thing would he withhold in your life? God is good, and he gives good gifts to you and to I. The next thing that we need to see is that God is not only our good father, but he is also our generous father. All right, James 1, 16 through 17, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every gift God gives is good. But think about how many gifts God has given. Do you realize each moment, each breath is a gift from God? I mean, just be challenged. Just sit down one time. I don't know if you journal or you write, but just write down and think about the blessings throughout your life, all the ways in which you've seen God work and these Ebenezer's and I've done that several times, and it just makes me laugh, and it makes me rejoice, and even times cry because of seeing how God has worked in my life. Because sometimes we miss it, don't you? We miss it because we're in the moment. And we're so caught in our temporality that we forget the history of what God has been doing and how he's been moving throughout our whole life. And God is, is generous, and not just these, these things, but God is generous because he gives us the things that really matter. What is it that we're to ask, to seek, to knock for? It's primarily the kingdom. Jesus says, he says, children, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so God is generous in that he wants to give us a life of joy, a life of peace, a life marked of love and of humility. What is it that you're seeking in your life? Because these are the things that God wants to impart to you. 
He wants to impart himself. And as he comes, he brings these things in spades in abundance. He is generous. And so I hope that as we look that, that asking, seeking, and knocking, that now we have our hearts are a little bit more inclined to delight in God. And because we delight in God, the discipline of prayer is going to become more profound in our hearts and our lives. Because prayer is effective, right? Prayer to a loving father is effective. Do you believe that God works and intercedes in your life? Because he does. And I know there are people that are sitting right now that are a testimony to prayer, to, to years of prayer and how God has worked in their lives. And I think about my own story, man. My parents, my parents went through a terrible divorce. I mean, it was ugly. Never thought they'd talk to each other, you know? And man, 10, 12 years later, man, God, through, through prayer and through seeking him, I mean, they go to church, they're in small group, and they come, think they're remarried, you know? Half the time, I'm like, listen, I can just make it happen. Tell me when, you know? But like, just to see God, God hears and answers prayer, I've seen it so much in my life. And so, yes, there are times where God says, no, but man, don't let that neglect the many times in which God says, yes, or in which God says, wait, and I will work. And so you and I, we need to believe that God changes us in prayer, but God changes this world and changes events and courses in history, whether that's before the foundation of the world, but he changes things through prayer, through our conversation, our relationship. So you and I, we need to be people that come to him and, and beg him. And this is what we do with bless, right? And this is why we do bless, is it starts. And so my challenge for you guys today, man, are you praying for the salvation? Are you praying for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth in your neighborhood as it is in heaven, in your family? And start, start praying over those names and asking God and trusting and believing that God might not do exactly as you think, but God will answer. God hears you. You are his child if you trust in him, and he hears you, and that he will answer. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. You can never ask too much. Prayer to a loving father is effective. Let us pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your word, for its power, Lord. I confess my own frailty, my own sinfulness, Lord, and that I, uh, I'm not as broken in prayer as I ought to be. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work within my heart, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would help us to, to delight in you, to see that all the pursuits that we chase after are but dim reflections of our pursuit of you. And so, God, would you do a work? Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, God, that they would trust you. They wouldn't let um, pleasing people or uh, a fear uh, hinder them, God, but that they would, they would give you their life because they realize that when we, when we seek to save our life, we lose it. But when we lose our life for your sake, we will save it. God, that there's only profit in coming to you. And so we, we worship you today, God. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.